Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We are uh, going to be uh, wrapping up the summer over these next few weeks with a new sermon series we're starting today called A Man After God's Own Heart. And we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at the life of David. Scripture says that David is a man after God's own heart. Throughout the ups and downs of his life, that is the title set about him. And so we want to see what that means over the next few weeks, see how God works through the life of David for the sake of understanding who God is and who he works through so that God might work through us. But there is a lot said about David across the entire story of Scripture. We're not going to be able to say it on Sunday mornings. And so if you would like to dig deeper into the life of David, when you leave today, there's a, a stack of bookmarks out at the Welcome Center as you go out uh, to your left through these main doors here. And there is a reading guide along this bookmark uh, so that if you are interested, you can read along uh, throughout this sermon series and read everything through First and Second Samuel and the first couple chapters of First Kings that is said about the life of David. And it doesn't perfectly line up with every th- sermon each week, but it'll uh, take you through David's entire life if that interests you. So I'd encourage you to pick one of those up if you would like. Uh, if you don't have a, uh, anything you're reading in the Bible right now, if you want to get into reading the Bible with friends, family, uh, whoever it might be, that might be a good way for you to be able to do that. But before we get to David, uh, I know I've said all this about starting a sermon series on the life of David. Now I'm going to contradict that and say we're actually going to get to David next week, so uh, you'll have to come back then, I guess. But today what I want to do is try to set the stage a little bit for this series with a little bit of prologue. Uh, There are a lot of great stories in the world, but if you know the backstory that's going on behind it, it helps us appreciate the story at a little deeper level level. The, the, the Lord of the Rings is a great story on its own, but if you want to appreciate it more deeply, you can read The Hobbit, you can watch those movies as well. If you really want to get into the, into the nitty-gritty, you can read The Silmarillion as well and really understand everything that's happening in those books. I'd use the prequels of the Star Wars movies as an example here, but I'm not convinced that's a good example of a prequel actually making the story better. And I know that's a joke that very few of you appreciate or care about but I'm hoping those of you that do appreciate it care about it a whole lot. David enters the story of Scripture in 1 Samuel 16. And, if, and that is important. But if we approach Scripture as the one unified story as it is, we'll find that David doesn't just drop out of thin air. David doesn't walk on the scene out of a vacuum. There's been a lot of groundwork laid in the story of Scripture up to the point of 1 Samuel 16 to prepare us for David's arrival. And it stretches back even to the the books that come to us in our Bibles before we get to 1 Samuel. Two books before 1 Samuel is the book of Judges. And you might know that the book of Judges contains some of the darkest stories that we find in all of of Scripture. It's not a great period of history for God's people. And over the last few chapters especially, we get this refrain over and over again. It's actually the last words of the entire book. We're told that in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
So time and time again, we, we, we read a story of God's people doing something that is far outside of God's will for them. We're told that Israel has no king, and after a few times of going through that pattern, we start to realize that if we've had the stomach to read through all those stories, that yes, things are not well with God's people at this moment, but perhaps a good king could be the solution. So we finish reading the book of Judges, we flip over to the book of Ruth. And Ruth 1.1 tells us that, in, that it is a story that takes place in the days when the judges ruled. That's the setting for this story. And if we've just finished reading the book of Judges, we might think, oh boy, here comes a lot more darkness, just as we saw in the last few chapters of the book of Judges. But actually what we find in the book of Ruth is a little bit of light in the midst of that darkness. You might remember a year or so ago, the Sunday school class that meets in this room walked through the books of Judges and Ruth. And I had the idea for that originally, but my plan was just to walk through the book of Judges. The junior high boy in me was like, that'll be a lot of fun to walk through all the gross stories in the book of Judges. That'll be so great. I was getting ready to put all that together, and Dennis Martin actually wisely counseled me and said, you know, it might not be a bad idea to look at Ruth as well in going through that. And I thought, well, you know, okay, sure. If that's what you want to do, we can do that. And by the time we got through the book of Judges, I thought, oh, I'm so glad (laughs) the book of Ruth is waiting for us because there is just a lot here. And if there's no hope in this, we're in a lot of trouble. But if we read through the book of Ruth, we find there's three main characters, Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then this figure, Boaz. And Ruth is not an Israelite. She's married to an Israelite man who dies. And so her and her mother-in-law are in a position where uh, they're essentially destitute with no hope, no prospects for the future. And yet Boaz, a distant relative, comes in and redeems them, saves them out of their situation. And through their faithfulness to God's law of everyone in this story doing what God says, as opposed to so many people around them, they are blessed And this story has a happy ending, and Ruth and Boaz give birth to a little boy named Obed. And in the last few verses of the book of Ruth, we're told a brief little family tree. We're told Obed grows up, and he has a son named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and has a son named David. So if we've read the book of Judges, we've seen pretty clearly Israel needs a king. And then then we've read the book of Ruth, and we think, well, maybe... Maybe if Israel was going to have a king, it should be someone who's faithful to God's law like Ruth and Boaz. And then we're given this list of names that we might want to keep in mind as we start reading the book of 1 Samuel. And in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to really three main characters in there. There are other characters as well, but I want to focus on those three today. These characters of Hannah, Samuel, and Saul to see how they help us get a sense for what we should be looking for when David shows up on the scene to help us get a sense for what it means to be a man, to be a person after God's own heart. Hannah is one of two wives of this man named Elkanah. And we're told in in 1 Samuel chapter 1 that Elkanah's other wife is able to have children, but Hannah is not. And so every year this family goes up to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices, to worship God, and each year Hannah's shame, her despair increases. She is heartbroken because she has no children. In their culture, that is a marker of shame and disgrace. It's an indication that God has abandoned her, and each year that shame increases the fear that one day she will be the only one left and there will be no one to care for her in her old age becomes more real. But eventually, instead of giving in to despair, we're told, excuse me, that Hannah commits her future to God. In 1 Samuel 1, starting at verse 9, 
The text says, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Then she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. It it makes sense that Hannah would ask for a son. But we would probably expect her to ask for a son for her own sake. I mean, this is a world with no social safety net. If Hannah's husband dies and she does not have any children to take care of her, she's essentially left with nothing. And yet, if you notice, Hannah's prayer is not for her own protection. It is a vow to God that that if God would bless her, if God would give her a son, she would set this son apart for service to him. She does not ask for a child for her own sake. She asks for a child for God's sake, that this child may honor God all the days of his life and serve him. And she trusts in that, that if she commits her future to God, then God will provide for her along the way. I don't know how long this process was for Hannah, but she has reached a point where she is no longer concerned about her own well-being, but she is concerned, first and foremost, with the purposes of God. And eventually this prayer is answered. Hannah gives birth to a baby boy. She names him Samuel. And after he grows up a little bit, Hannah brings him to the tabernacle to dedicate him to God. And in the midst of that, she prays this prayer that's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. The text says, Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who, were, those who were full hired themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah has personally experience the power and the faithfulness of God, and therefore she worships him. If you notice, there's a clear focus in that prayer of what God has done for her. She says that her heart rejoices, that the Lord has lifted her horn high as if she's an animal that's triumphed over an attacker. She boasts over her enemies because of what God has done. She delights in the deliverance of God. She praises God because of her experience of his provision and blessing because only the one true God could do what she's experienced. No one is like him. Hannah's trusted in the only one that could save her and he has come through on his promise and that is why she praises God. 
But this prayer does not stop by saying, look at all these amazing things God has done for me. Shouldn't you be happy for me because of what I have experienced? Her prayer calls others to recognize who God is and what he does. Because God does not do things like this for her. What God has done for Hannah, taking her from mourning into joy, vindicating her against her enemies, that is what God plans to do for all people, and therefore all people should hear what Hannah is saying and respond accordingly. Because those who are proud and arrogant will be taken down. Those who trust in themselves and ignore the commands of God will be humbled. Those that are looked on as blessed will be lowered, and those that are looked upon as humiliated will be lifted up. God has vindicated Hannah in the face of her shame. Not because she's anyone special, but because this is who God is. And all people should recognize that reality and respond accordingly. Because a God who works like this will not allow injustice to go unchecked. He will not let oppression continue forever. He will come alongside those who have no one to stand next to them. He takes the poor and the needy out of their mourning and their begging and places them on thrones He rules all things. He's the final authority. He's the one who brings blessing on his people and curses on those that oppose him. He is worthy of all worship. And that's who Hannah praises. And yet her praise doesn't just end with herself. If you notice in verse 10, this prayer ends by saying that God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's maybe a prayer that makes sense. It's just... A little odd, given that as Hannah prays this prayer, there's no king in Israel. And why would you pray for God to do something for someone who doesn't exist? And even more than that, why would you pray for a king in the midst of a prayer that doesn't seem to be very concerned with people like kings? I mean, we've just run through this prayer. There's a lot in this prayer about God taking those who are low and humiliated and those on the lower rungs of society and elevating them. God doesn't... God doesn't seem to have within that uh, equation kings, because kings tend to be at the top. Kings tend to be the ones that get humiliated so that God can lift up other people. So why would Hannah pray for a king at the end of this prayer? Well, it seems like maybe, if nothing else, God might have a different vision for a king than what we would tend to picture. Maybe Hannah has in mind a king that will not use power and authority for their own sake, but for the sake of others. Maybe Hannah's envisioning a king that will do the kinds of things that she has just said that God does for his people. That that this king would be like God, would care for the hurting and the broken, would use their power to defeat evil instead of perpetuating it while enriching themselves. If someone like that was in charge, well then maybe amazing things could happen. Hannah gives us an example here in her vow before God and in her prayer of someone who trusts in God to provide and who knows that the God she worships is the God who stands on the side of the overlooked and the oppressed and who wants everyone to know who this God is so that they will experience life with him, that they will humble themselves before him and be exalted as a result. So as we keep reading, looking for a king for God's people, Maybe we should hope that they trust in God as deeply as Hannah does in these passages. Hannah's son Samuel grows up and he becomes really the last of the judges over God's people. And that means a few different things. It means at times he is like a prophet. He shows up, he tells the people, here's what God 
said, here's what you need to do, here's what you need to stop doing in your sin, and you need to worship God for who he is. Sometimes it means that Samuel is like a military leader, that he shows up and he says, this is how God has said you should go into battle, this is who should lead the way, this is what that should look like. But Samuel is not the king, but sort of the de facto leader of the people of Israel. And as he gets towards the end of his life, we're not told totally what his thinking is, but he seems to think that his family line is going to continue leading in this way. He wants to put his two sons in charge of God's people. And the people aren't totally thrilled with that plan, as we're going to see here in just a little bit. But the solution they have instead really isn't much better. We see this in 1 Samuel 8, starting at verse 1. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage of Scripture, but I want to read it all for us because I think it's important. It says, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, not a great way to win someone over to your side, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves." When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. And give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. I don't know if Samuel is arrogant, optimistic, looking at his own sons with rose colored glasses or something else, but he wants his sons to take his place even though they are not fit for the job. And the people are right to reject that plan, and yet their solution is far worse. This request breaks Samuel's heart because he sees it as a rejection of his leadership, a rejection of his life's work. And yet, God makes it clear, it's not a rejection of Samuel. It's a rejection of God and a rejection of who God has called his people to be. 
One commentator says that the Israelites demand for a king. It is sinful in its motives, selfish in its timing, and cowardly in its spirit. God had given guidelines in the book of Deuteronomy around what a king should look like. And so it's not that God was ever opposed to Israel ever having a king to rule over them, but he is opposed to a king who is like the other nations. And the people's request for one is sinful, selfish, and cowardly. They're sinning as they reject this covenant God had established with them through his law, where he promised to protect and provide for them as they reflected his glory to the surrounding nations. They're saying, nah, we'd, we'd rather be like everyone else. They're being selfish. They're sick of waiting on God's timing, and they want things to happen their way. And they're being cowardly. They no longer trust that the God that they cannot see will lead them, love them, protect them as he has promised to always do. And so they want a king that they can see. They look around. All these other nations have kings and armies, and they seem to be doing pretty well. They have gods, not just one God that they can offer sacrifices to that will help them get ahead as long as they do everything in the right way. And here they are. They have no king. They have no army. They have just one God. Surely. If we're going to grow as a nation, if we're going to be more firmly established in this region, if we're going to be able to defend ourselves, we need to take the next step. We need to level up as a nation, and we need to get a king. Surely we can move past God's commands and take matters into our own hands. Samuel, give us a king like the other nations. And surprisingly, God grants their request because he knows the consequences will be punishment enough. A king will not be a gift like they think it will be. In the past, God has uh, raised up leaders just for times of crisis. But a permanent king means someone is permanently in charge and will need to be permanently supported. And so sure, God is going to give the people a king as they are asking for, but once that king's in place, he's going to do a lot of taking. They will take the sons of the people to serve in the military. They will take sons that aren't cut out for military service to uh, make work the royal fields or work in the production of chariots and weapons. They will take their daughters to serve in the palace. They will take the best fields to be their own. They will take the best of the harvest and the livestock as taxes each year. And after the king is done taking, the people will be left crying out to God for deliverance just like their ancestors did when they were in slavery in Egypt. Yet Samuel's warning is ignored by those that are there. But, but as we keep reading this story, this is a moment where we get a glimpse into what God truly desires and how human plans tend to run against those desires. God's goal is for his people to reflect who he is to a watching world, yet human pride tends to look at our own needs, our own wants instead. So whether it's the pride of Samuel who wants his sons to lead or the pride of the people wanting a king like the other nations, in the end, the demands of the people force the desires of God into the back seat. So instead of a king like Hannah envisioned in her prayer, we get King Saul. And Saul would seem to look pretty good on the surface. 1 Samuel 9-2 tells us that he is handsome and he is tall, and that would seem to be traits that make us think he is like the kings of the other nations. Yet as we keep reading... We find that Saul may look the part, but he doesn't have too many qualifications beyond that. So the last passage I want to look at today is in 1 Samuel 13, where Saul and his army, they are preparing to go into battle against the Philistines. They've been told by Samuel to wait. 
He says, before you go into battle, I, I need you to stay there for seven days, and then I'm going to show up. I'm going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and give you directions for the battle, and then you can go into battle. But instead, Saul and his army are getting a little antsy as they wait for Samuel to show up, starting in 1 Samuel 13 at verse 7. It says, Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when... When I saw that the, the men were scattering and, and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I, I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. A part of me thinks Saul is like most of us and does not enjoy waiting, no matter the situation. And so maybe there's a part of me that can understand why Saul is getting so antsy here because Samuel said he'd come in seven days. Seven days have passed. I don't see Samuel anywhere. My troops are starting to ask questions of whether or not we should stay here, go do something else. Maybe some of them are wanting to go home. My authority is being questioned. I need to do something to show that I'm in control of this situation. And sure, Samuel said to wait and that he was going to come and offer the sacrifice. But I mean, Saul's He's seen a sacrifice before. He knows how this is supposed to work. There's not too much to it. And he's the king. I mean, the kings of all the other nations get to do whatever they want. There's no final, there's no other authority. There's no check and balance keeping them in place. They get to do whatever they please. So if Saul wants to offer a sacrifice, if he thinks that's the right thing to do to show his army that he's still in control and he knows what's going on, then why shouldn't he? And as he's wrapping up this sacrifice, Samuel arrives and cannot believe it. Because Saul has disobeyed the direct commands from Samuel. And Samuel was speaking on behalf of God. The kings of the other nations may be the final authority on all things, but that is not how the king of the one true God's people was supposed to function. They were to lead in light of God's guidance. They were to listen to people like Samuel to give them direction. But Saul has decided that instead he's going to do what he thinks is best. He doesn't have time to wait on God. He needs to make a demonstration of his strength to rally his troops. He needs to prove that he is in control, which is exactly why God will not allow him to remain in control. Instead, Samuel says, God is going to seek a king who will be a man after God's own heart. He will not be a king like the other nations. God is going to find a king who is concerned first and foremost with God's desires. Instead of a king that pulls well with the people, he's going to find a king that is holy. That's the sort of king God can work with. Saul could have done great things, but he fell short because he wanted to rule for his own sake. God cannot work through people that put his authority as secondary to their own. 
but he can do incredible things through people who seek him first, no matter who they are. So if God's people in the book of 1 Samuel or today are going to fulfill God's calling, the most important thing is to have a heart after God's. Above all the particulars of our lives, first and foremost, we should desire to be people after God's own heart, whether that's a mother, a father, a husband, a wife, or an employee, whatever it might be, we should say that we are doing those things with a heart after God's. That's what God desires of us, so that he can work through us. And as we read through these chapters, we get positive and negative previews of what that of what that should look like and what it doesn't look like. Hannah shows us that our God is not the God of the big and the powerful. He is the God of the meek and the humble. And in a world where we are told to stand up for ourselves, to make our own name great, because if you don't, then who will? We have a God who says he stands by those who have no one to stand alongside them. If you feel left out and forgotten, the one true God sees you and he cares for you. Jesus came in humility as our example of what it looks like to live humbly before God as he works through us. And we get a preview of that in Hannah. When we look at Samuel, we see that God is always at work through his people. When things seem dark and hopeless, God does unlikely things like giving a baby boy to a barren mother so that that boy can grow up and lead God's people. God does great things when we commit ourselves to following his lead. So with whatever authority or influence you might have, may we all understand that it has been given to us by God and then strive to use that for his purposes. And when we look at Saul, we see what happens when someone does not follow God's calling. God rejects those who are concerned with themselves before him, no matter how gifted they might be. It was not that Saul had a lack of talent. It's not that Saul had something that God could not use. It was that he was in it for his own sake instead of for the sake of God's glory. In a world that tells us to look out for ourselves, that we should want things our way, we look to Jesus, the one who prayed not for his will, but for the will of God to be done. And all of that prepares us to then see how God works through David. David is a man after God's own heart, but he is not called that because he is perfect. But what makes him different is that he knows how to repent when he fails. So when we talk about being a person after God's own heart in our own lives, it's not a matter of making ourselves into better people, being better at keeping rules, whatever it might mean. It it means first and foremost, understanding who God is. And seeking his heart first and foremost and repenting when we fail of that standard and asking God to work on us so that then he can work through us. So through this section of scripture we're going to be unpacking for the next few weeks, we see God do incredible things through people who put his desires ahead of their own. That is what it means to be a person after God's own heart. And I hope I can say this without sounding arrogant, but... My prayer is that we as individuals and as a church would be known, would, that it would be said over us that we are people after God's own heart. Not better than anyone else, but humbly seeking God's glory. 
so that he can accomplish his purposes through us. So whoever you are, wherever you are with God this morning, my ask of you over these next few weeks is that we would come before God and give up our desires so that we can take hold of his instead. That's where we begin to be formed into a person after God's own heart. And if you need help in figuring out what that looks like in your own life, we would love to meet with you out at the Welcome Center after we're done this morning to talk with you, to pray with you, to connect you with some resources that might help you do that and, and help you seek God's heart in all things. Because as powerless as, as we may feel in the world around us or, or as, as hopeless as things might seem, whatever darkness we might be going through, we see time and time again in Scripture that when we humble ourselves before God, God does amazing things through his people. So may we align our heart after God so that he can use us for his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you desire to work with your people. Uh, that you fill us with your presence, you guide us, you call us into, and into life with you. So God, as we begin this series today of looking at the life of David, we simply want to come before you this morning and ask for your will to be done as a church, within us as individuals. God, we are imperfect people, but we trust that you meet us in our imperfections, you meet us in our brokenness, and when we humble ourselves before you, you form us after your heart so that we can be used for your purposes. So we ask that you would guide us, give us wisdom, expose sin within us that we need to repent of, so that we can be cleansed, that we can be healed, so that we can have life with you. Give us humility, give us wisdom to know what it looks like to follow your, your will and your call in all things. We are grateful that you do not leave us as orphans, that you've sent your Son, you've given us your Spirit so that we might glorify you in all things. So would you do that in us uh, over the next few weeks of this series and always? May us call us in your Son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.